One of the objectionable, irrational, easy-to-criticize things about our faith as Christians is this, and you've experienced this. We turn to God when bad things happen, believing He could have kept them from happening in the first place. Isn't this true? Don't we all do this? We typically encourage other people to do it too. We turn to God when bad things happen. God help me. And we turn to God with this odd confidence that, well, God, you could have kept this all from happening in the first place, but now that it has happened, I'm going to turn to the very one who could have kept it from happening. But at the same time, most of us, we feel like we don't have any choice. What else are we going to do? Where else are we going to turn? Maybe you've been here before. You find yourself asking God to comfort someone else in the aftermath of a loss. A loss that you are confident God could have prevented in the first place, but didn't. So, are we unhinged? Are we naive? Well, obviously some would argue yes. For you, this might be the dynamic. This might be the reason that you finally gave up on faith altogether. And and I'll just tell you, you know, just between the two of us, nobody else listening, I understand that. In early 2020, there were two teenage brothers who passed away on the same day in circumstances that were so horrific. Weeks after the incident, parents are sending an email and they're, they're kind of detailing the, the story and giving an update. And there was a statement in that email where the father said, it doesn't really matter now what God does because of what he did not do then. And that family was fighting to maintain their sanity and, and their faith. And there was, there was good reason to suggest that their faith would not survive. And these people, don't get me wrong, these people knew all the Bible verses, okay? They know the Bible stories. The mom later said that, that one of the most helpful things that she was told by her pastor was that if your faith did not survive this, well, that, that's understandable. And she said, you, you, you said that it, it may take years for our faith to recover, assuming that it recovers at all. Three months later, the parents sent notice that they were beginning the planning of a memorial service to take place in another three months. Now, the timelines are partially impacted by COVID restrictions, but the truly remarkable thing that I want you to see here is that they were already rediscovering faith. But... But not their old version of faith, okay? They would be quick to tell you it's a much better faith. It's a much deeper faith. A faith that wasn't getting propped up by the promises. Always going to be up and to the right. The graph is always going to go up and to the right. A faith that's not propped up by, well, don't worry. God will make sure that you get back to normal eventually. Because this family will never get back to normal eventually. What they recovered was faith in God, not the promises of God, not the blessings of God, just God. Because all the other stuff and all the other fluff had been torn away in a day, a painful day. And you may know someone like that. And perhaps you are are hoping for a recovery like that in you. And, And it may help to know, it certainly helps me to know, it may help you to know that the men and women who brought us the message of Jesus walked 
through similar valleys. Valleys filled with random acts of violence, unnecessary suffering, and unanswered prayer. And yet somehow, some way, they believed and they persevered. A large section of the New Testament takes place in a time when food was about to become and then did become scarce throughout the Roman Empire. Most people in ancient times were already hungry most of the time, right? So when a famine strikes, it's not like people just eat less or they just, you know what, it's going to be just ramen noodles for us right now. It's all itchy band. It's all craft dinner from now on. In many parts of the world, there was actually nothing to eat. And as you might know, the church in Antioch, instead of turning inward at that time and focusing just on their own needs, they wanted to look at their outflow. They actually stopped to consider what would be most negatively, who would be most negatively impacted by the famine. And then they asked the question, in light of that, what can we do? What can we do about it? And in an unprecedented move, they began collecting funds for a group of people that they had never met in a part of the world that they would never visit, whose culture was nothing like theirs. And this is so important because it was so unprecedented. And I want to show you a map. So I'm going to put up a map over here. And I want to give you a visual to help you understand the magnitude of their decision of what they did. Here's a map of the Holy Land with Jerusalem down here in the south. Then you move up a little bit and you're going to see the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then kind of way up at the top of Israel in the north, you have the, uh, the city of Damascus. Damascus up about here. It's a long way from Jerusalem down here to Damascus. Just, just ask Saul. He made the trip. And these Gentile followers of Jesus were located in Antioch. Antioch, which is sort of way up here at the top of the map. It's 300 kilometers, 300 miles, about 500 kilometers from Jerusalem to Antioch. And in terms of ancient travel, these two cities, well, just, just look at all the cities that are in between them here, right? These two cities are an eternity apart. And culturally speaking, as I said, they're at least a half a world apart. Never before, never before in recorded history had a local multicultural group felt responsibility for a group of people with whom they had virtually nothing in common. Thanks, guys. You can remove the map. Now, here's the question. Where did this politically and socially incorrect behavior come from? Well, it came from their recognition. For God so loved the entire world. All of it that he gave. And so they gave. They gave because that's what love required of them. The folks that were, you know, way up in Antioch, the Gentile believers in Antioch are beginning to take up a collection. They are concerned about the believers in Jerusalem who are already suffering because they're being persecuted for their faith. And then, then there's a famine that's about to make things even worse. Okay, so, so anyway, back in Jerusalem, something terrible happens. I mean, like I said, something terrible is coming, famine, but something terrible happens. Something random, something seemingly unnecessarily, something dark, something violent, something that would leave Jesus' followers scratching their heads and wondering where in the world was God. Here's what happened. Luke writes about it in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. 
It was about this time. And again, just to put this, hold on a second, just put this into perspective. I want to give you a picture, the, the bigger picture timeline kind of thing, okay? Acts 12 happens about 15 years after the resurrection. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. That word comes up sometimes now. So that we are clear, this persecution did not involve them having to wear masks or adjust their meeting locations or times. This persecution was torture. This King Herod is known as Herod Agrippa. And he is actually the grandson of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the one who murdered all the babies in Bethlehem after Jesus was born. So violence clearly runs in this family. And the sum that he intended to arrest were actually Jesus' original apostles. And his first victim was a high-profile target. His first victim was one of Jesus' very first apostles. Here's what Luke tells us, uh, verse 2. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. He had James, the brother of John, not James, the brother of Jesus, beheaded. So there's Peter, Andrew, James, John. This was a huge blow to the morale of the Jesus followers in Jerusalem. But it won Herod political points with his constituency. Luke goes on, verse 3. When he saw that this met with the approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. And this happened during the festival of unleavened bread, which is also known as Passover. That's right. Now, Peter is a really big fish. Next to Jesus, Peter is the biggest fish. And this is going to keep those taxpayers happy and perhaps quell some of that anti-Roman sentiment that tends to bubble up, gets real high during Passover season. So Herod followed through with his threat. Verse 4, after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by uh, four squads of four soldiers each. So Peter is being guarded by four soldiers at all times. And this happened at the beginning of Passover. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after Passover. Sneak peek, that's what he's got coming at the end. Verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. They were praying specifically for Peter's release. And there it is. Do you see it? This is one of the many places where the experience of first-generation believers intersects with ours. Just think about it. Jesus' followers are asking God to deliver Peter days after God did not deliver James. Just so we're clear. Jesus' followers are asking God to deliver Peter days after God did not deliver James. Why bother? If God was concerned about Peter, he wouldn't have allowed Peter to get arrested in the first place, right? So if God didn't stop Peter from being arrested, why turn to God after he's arrested? And if God didn't protect James, why should they expect him to protect Peter? These people are as off base as we are. Actually, we are as off base as they were because apart from their seemingly crazy behavior, we would not be having this conversation at all. Apart from their crazy the message of Jesus would never have survived the first century. 
You know what? It turns out that they weren't crazy. And their faith, their faith was not misplaced. And neither is yours. So for me, narratives like this one are comforting on a number of levels. The people closest to the action, to uh, the, the men and the women who actually knew Jesus personally and chose to follow him because of the resurrection, they saw the whole thing. They were not immune to random, inexplicable tragedy and loss. And in spite of believing that God could have kept these bad things from happening, they turned to him for comfort and help anyway, right after those things happened. So we may be crazy, but we're in good company. We are not the first. And they didn't continue trusting and turning to God because it all made sense. They continued trusting and turning to God because the thing that made the least sense of all, the crucifixion of God's Messiah, resulted in the greatest possible good for all. The salvation of the world, the forgiveness of sin, and an on-ramp to a relationship with our God. For us, to the degree that our faith is anchored to the same events, our confidence in God will sustain us through the random, inexplicable, God, where are you, valleys of life. So when you find yourself praying to the very God who did not come through for you to begin with, the way that you wanted him to, the way that you expected him to, the way that he came through for the person next to you, you know what? You're in good company. Company like Peter and Andrew and James and John and Mary and Martha. The men and women whose faith laid the groundwork for the evangelization of the entire world they're irrational in spite of where are you God faith is why the message of Jesus made it all the way to the 21st century to me and to you. Spoiler alert, Herod does not execute Peter. And we're going to get to that in just a moment, okay? But several year, years after Peter was arrested in Jerusalem, he actually sits down and he, and he dictates a letter to Christians living in, in a variety of regions sort of scattered throughout the Roman Empire. Christians who, like himself and his friends in Jerusalem, were suffering because of their faith. Now, before I tell you what he writes, keep in mind, by the time he's writing this letter, he's been arrested multiple times. He's been living as a fugitive for years. He's kept his whereabouts so concealed. Nobody even knows for sure where Peter was between his arrest in Jerusalem and his execution in Rome, maybe nine or ten years later. Yet, in spite of this, in spite of the fact that he's living on the run, here's what he says. He writes to Christians who were experiencing some of the same things that he was. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hello, Peter! Come on, wait a second here. You've been arrested multiple times. You've been flogged. You are now scarred for life. And the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ did nothing to stop it. You've got a price on your head. Stephen is dead. James is dead. The apostles are all scattered. What are you talking about? He would say, here's what I'm talking about. Verse 3 again. In his great mercy... He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. (coughs) Your prayers may not all get answered, and you may never understand the randomness of life, but you have hope. And your hope isn't anchored to theology, and it isn't anchored to belief, and it's not anchored to a book. Peter says that our hope is anchored to an event, an event that rekindled his hope, the resurrection of Jesus. And then he says this, verse 6, in all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. In light of all that God has done for you, you can still find joy and you can rejoice in the middle of it. There's not joy because of the trials, there's joy in spite of the trials because of what God has done for you. And Peter, again, who suffered in ways that we can't even begin to imagine that what his suffering is. He says, just, just for suffering just for a little while. Just for a little while. And he could have added, in all kinds of trials, just like I have. Yeah, all right, Peter. This is still really hard to get into. Griefs, trials, suffering, randomness are not evidence that God's not listening, that God's not involved. They don't indicate that things are spinning out of control. We need a revival. Jesus is coming soon. Or or, or maybe we've done something wrong and God is punishing us. Peter would say, no, no, no. Not at all. Verse 7, these trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Again, to which we would say, so Peter, we, are, we should expect this? And Peter would say, yes. And people are watching. People who are suffering as you suffer are watching. People suffering without hope will be drawn to your hope, your peace. <coughs> they may even be drawn to the object of your faith because the darker it gets, the brighter your hope the brighter your response shines. As Jesus said, so as you suffer, as you try to explain the inexplicable, as you navigate yourself and you navigate your way through things you never anticipated and for which there's just no answers, let your light shine in such a way, in such a way that people see your response and they go eyes up. And then he continues, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, and this works well for us too, right? Because we haven't seen Jesus. Remember, because he's writing to people who have actually never seen Jesus, the way that Peter had seen Jesus. Though you've never met him, though you've never seen him, you love him. Based on my testimony about him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Verse 9, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We push back again. So Peter, what you're saying is this, uh, that the inconsistency, that the randomness of life, it doesn't throw you off? It doesn't undermine your confidence? Come on here. Come on, Peter. They got James. They came for you. And Peter would say, no. My faith doesn't depend on consistency, on certainty, 
or my ability to explain things. My faith is not shaken by the randomness of life. Are you kidding? Come on, I saw the best possible person suffer the worst possible death. It made no sense at all, none. And God brought him back to life. So while there's a lot that, you know, I can't explain, there's, there's a lot that I don't fully understand. I just got to tell you, after the resurrection, the rest, just detail. Then in the same letter, Peter gives his audience, and he gives to us the strangest to-do list. But you know what? We're going to talk about that next time. But let, let's get back to the storyline. Let's go back to where we were. So, so God allows Herod to execute James. He allows Herod to arrest Peter and put him in jail. Then the Jesus followers in Jerusalem, they are praying. They've gathered together, asking God to facilitate Peter's release, knowing that Herod will very likely be coming for them next. And then for reasons that made absolutely no sense to them at the time, but would later become clearer, Acts 12, 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial and then to have him executed. Because there's only one way that trial was going, right? It was going to execution. Peter's sleeping between two soldiers, between, bound with two chains. Sentries stood guard at the entrance. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone into the cell. He struck Peter on the side and he said, wake, quick, get up. He said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Verse 8, then the angel said to him, come on, put on your, put on your clothes and your sandals. Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Verse 9, Peter followed him out of the prison. But he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was just seeing a vision. Verse 10, they, they passed the first and, and, and the second guards, and then they came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself. And then they, they went through it. And when they had walked one, the length of one street, suddenly the angel left them. Now, I know what you're thinking, all right? Because I think really the same thing. Really? <laughs> really? Right? Why doesn't God do that kind of thing anymore? Why, why doesn't God do that kind of thing for me anymore? But let me tell you what Peter and his friends were wondering. Why didn't God do that for James, our friend? And they never got a good answer to their question. And we may never get satisfying answers to ours either. Now, when Peter realized that this was not a dream, that he was really safe and he's on the outside of the city walls, Acts 12, 12, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, that's important, where many people had gathered and were praying. So Peter runs down the street. He knows he doesn't have much time, certainly doesn't want to implicate his friends, so he runs to the door of a home he'd been to many times. 13, Peter knocks at the door, the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door, 14. When she recognized Peter's voice, she's so overjoyed. She runs back in without opening the door and exclaimed, ah, Peter's at the door, Peter's at the door. Remember, she went back to go talk to the people who were in that other room praying 
for his release. But apparently, even in the Bible, they did not really expect God to answer their prayer. Listen to their responses, okay? This is really important. This is just more evidence that the writers of the New Testament did not write the main characters in as heroes or even people with more than average faith. They didn't experience miracles every day and they did not expect a miracle this day. So Rhoda tells the people praying, Peter's at the door. And here's what they gently spoke to her. Verse 15. Hey, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. When she kept on insisting that it must be so, they said, okay, it must be his angel. Hold on a second here, folks. Weren't you just praying for this? To which they'd say, of course, yeah. Uh, but we didn't really expect anything to happen. You know what? He must already be dead. And, and at the door, that must be just his ghost. So 16, but Peter kept on knocking. And when they finally opened the door, they saw him. They're all astonished. Imagine that. An actual answer to prayer. Who would have seen that coming? At this point, they're all so delighted, right? It's like high fives and they're celebrating. Woo, woo. And they're making so much noise in the middle of the night, 17. <coughs> Peter motions with his hand to be quiet. And then he describes how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James, and this James is James, the brother of Jesus, and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. More good stuff here. And we're going to come back to this part next episode as well. Luke doesn't say where Peter went. Now, remember, when he wrote this, Peter was still alive. And he was still a wanted man. If Luke knew where Peter was... He didn't document it, lest his document fall into the wrong hands. So Peter went underground, and he did it so successfully that to this day, no one has discovered for certain where he went. Then Luke gives us even more detail, okay? Acts 12, 18. As you might imagine, in the morning there was no small commotion, understatement, um, among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. Verse 19, after Herod had a thorough search made for him, did not find him, he cross-examines the guards, and then he orders that they be executed. Herod, publicly humiliated, because he had promised the people that they were going to see the trial and execution of Peter, Jesus' number one follower. He's so humiliated. He leaves town, he goes to his beach house down by the Mediterranean Sea. While he's there, a group from a neighboring city asks to have an audience with him just to show their support because they depend on Herod and his favor for their food supply, which is coming into question. So Luke tells us about this, Acts 12, 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. Now, Jewish historian who is employed by the Romans, a guy named Josephus, says that Herod's robe on this particular day was actually made of silver. And that when the afternoon sun reflected off the silver robe, the crowd erupted and declared him a god. Luke says the same thing, but he says it this way. Luke, or Acts 12, verse 22. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not a man. 23. Immediately, 
because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. This is confirmed by Josephus. Josephus, this is what he wrote. Herod was seized by a severe pain in his bowels. He's rushed off the stage, and several days later he dies. <coughs> now what do you think? What, what, what do you think Peter thought when he got the news? I, mean, I guess he was probably relieved that uh, Herod's out of the way, but he may just have thought, God, if you had just taken him a month earlier, I wouldn't be on the run. James would still be alive, as well as those four other unfortunate prison guards. Luke wraps up his account with a statement, Acts 12, 24. But, and the, the but here is important, in spite of all this drama, in spite of all this inconsistency, in spite of all these unanswered questions, verse 24, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And we know that it did, because that's why these texts were created and preserved. It's why the name and the message of Jesus would eventually encircle the globe. But, but on a more personal level, these events and events like these and the response of our first century brothers and sisters is why, to borrow a phrase from the Apostle Paul, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, it's so that you do not grieve as those who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Again, to borrow from Peter's words, 1 Peter 5.7, it's why we can cast all your cares on him. Because he cares for you. You can know that he cares for you in, in, in spite of what you see around you. In spite of what's happening to you. He cares for you. It's why to borrow a phrase from the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.16, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, with assurance, right? Just like we talked about last week. Not certainty, but assurance so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. It's why we have hope even when we don't have explanations. If Peter is correct, and he would know, what strikes us as random, unfair, unnecessary, may in fact be random. It certainly is unfair, and perhaps it's unnecessary, but in spite of that, if Peter is correct, he assures us our hope is not misplaced. Our hope, your, your hope is not in vain because we have a living hope. 1 Peter 1.3, he has given us new birth into a living hope that is anchored not to our ability to predict and interpret circumstances. We have a living hope that is anchored through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Kind Father, thank you so much for allowing us to have access to this story, to be able to see the way you have worked in history. Because now we're in a time when it feels like things have gone wrong in so many places. We, we, we see random events, we see violence, we see unpredictable things, we, we, we see things that are going wrong, and there's so many in our culture who want to claim, uh, claim, this is the end of the world. This is cataclysmic. This is somehow so different. God, you must come to save us. And this is, this is just the way it has been. There is suffering. 
But with you beside us, as you as our living hope, we have the potential, the, the possibility to overcome, to bear up under, and to come through. And as we do that, as we have hope that is in you and, and other people who are in the same circumstances as us, they see our hope. And, and, and in that, they can, they can see this not, uh, not an understanding of uh, a list of beliefs, but they can understand a living hope. Not, not, not check marks on a box. Do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? They see evidence of a life being lived, transformed by the power and partnership with the grace of the Holy Spirit in us. Oh God, I thank you for the way that you have set this up to work and that, that you have chosen us. You have set us aside to be lights in this dark world, to, to provide a gateway to hope. You, you partner with us. We are involved in this mission with you. We, we don't just talk about something that God does. We, we talk about something that is God is doing. And, and for some reason, he's doing it in us. And through us, we are part of the divine plan. We are part of God's mission on earth. And it just blows my mind that you've decided to work in this way to give us such value to allow us to have the face-to-face -face contact, to see people who turn to us for hope, to, to, to be able to have a discussion about just how you've changed us, how you've set us free. For my friends today, God, who, who feel very much like they're, they're in the, I don't know what's going on, the God, where are you valley? God, I pray that today you would give a vision of yourself, of your, of your, of your goodness, of your love. You have not left these alone. You have not left them by themselves. You have not abandoned them. And it is in these circumstances and through these circumstances that they might actually still be able to find joy, not in what's happening, but in spite of what's happening. God, grant this miracle today by the power of your Spirit again, that you would transform the perspective as we go eyes up, as we go Jesus first, everything else after. As we do that, would you show us that we are not abandoned, that you stand with us. And while we don't necessarily like where we are, we can be empowered to be in it and then realize that you can use what's happening to our benefit, but also to the benefit of those around us. It never makes those circumstances in them of themselves good but you can take bad and transform it into good you're that amazing oh god for my friends that are listening today i pray a blessing upon them a blessing that looks to you first transforms the way that we see everything else god help us to see as you see so that we can do as you say because when we don't see as you see, it's hard to follow you sometimes. But when we see as you see, it all makes so much more sense. Give us that blessing today, I pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.